If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Shelly, welcome to the War Room. Thanks, Ryan, for having me on. Okay, so the book's titled Beautiful Ashes. Now, that seems to be almost a contradictory statement. How did you come up with such a title like that? Well, it's based on a scripture out of Isaiah about around uh, rising from the ashes kind of thing. And it was a play on words because, because of the context of my story. And, and so when you're thinking about your story, which you're going to get into and, and put, uh, putting a title to it, is that an emotional process for something that's you know, so deeply connected to you? Oh, yeah. Uh, coming up with the title, <laughs> well, it took me several years to come up with the title. Writing my book took me uh, nine years. You would think writing a memoir would be brainless because it's your story. But um, I had to wait for the right ending. I think that was part of the uh, part of the problem. And I um, I'm I'm an engineer, so I needed uh, help a lot of help with, with the writing. Um, I, I actually had a friend of mine that uh, is the ghostwriter on, on it, but so we would collaborate and go back and forth and I would give her the details. She would wordsmith it. So, uh, so to speak. And then I would, I would uh, come back with, you know, my input and we went back and forth and back and forth, but it's a long story why it took nine years, but it took nine years. She moved to Thailand for three years. And <laughs> so, so it, it's a, it was a, um, it's a work of love. I, I, I did this for the sole purpose to, to help others mm-hmm. uh, find hope in adversity that that's my purpose in, in writing my book. It wasn't something that I ever really wanted to do, but I was encouraged to do it. Every single time I tell my story, people say, well, this needs to be a movie. (laughs) (laughs) So, so that's, that's how we got, uh, got to where we are today. Walk me through the year of 1985. Wow. Okay. Well, that's where the book starts out, but that's not where the story starts. It's where the the biggest tragedy in my life started. So my dad was a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde alcoholic who um, who got violent when he when he drank. And so <clears throat> on October 14th, 1985, um, my dad was working for Ford at the time. And back in the day, uh, the, they had new CAD systems and they had to run them 24 hours a day because they were so expensive. And so my dad was on afternoon shifts for a couple of years at that point. And so normally what would happen is uh, on a normal day, my sister and I'd go to school. My mom went to work. Um, she worked for an insurance agency and, uh, I would come home, especially in the fall. My sister and I were three sport athletes. So I would come home from school on the bus because um, I was on the junior varsity basketball team and my sister was on this varsity team and she would stay after because varsity practice was first. And then I would go back and my practice was after. 
Well, normally by the time that I got, would get home off the bus, my dad would just about be leaving for work. He normally would have put something in the um, oven for dinner and, um, and that's how the day would go. And so this day, um, my, my grandmother was out of town. And so my sister had driven her car to school and she had had a different class, uh, the first two cl- uh, periods of the day and, and her and a couple girls, instead of taking the bus to their class, um, drove back to the school and they stopped at a party store and the two girls that were with her stole some beer because, you know, seniors in high school can't buy beer. And so they got arrested that day. And I was at school hearing the rumor mill saying so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so got arrested. I'm like, oh crap, Lisa, what did you do? So my dad had to pick my sister up from the police station and um, bail her out. They were all seniors that did this. And so the police were threatening to press charges and all this. So it was a super big deal. Well, in my house, um, that kind of stuff puts you on high alert because now there's a reason for volatility to, to happen. So, you know, you, when you grow up in domestic violence, you, you, you know, these things. So I never saw my sister once she came back to school after lunch, I took the bus home. And when I got home, instead of my dad get being ready to leave for work, he was drunk in the, in the kitchen, in his bathrobe, making meatloaf. And I knew, so again, my antenna is going up. And so I knew that I had a problem on my hands because now my dad is actually crying, which that is not an emotion that I was used to dealing with anger. Yes. But now he's crying, asking me, where did I go wrong as a parent? Blah, 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 blah. And I'm just looking for a way to escape the situation. So I retreat to my room and um, I call my mom a little bit after that to arrange the driving situation for carpools. And my friend was supposed to come pick me up and then my mom was going to pick me up after. Well, unfortunately for me, I made that phone call and my mother asked my dad had left for work yet. And so I said no. And she decided that she wanted to talk to him. So they started talking on the phone. And, you know, this is back in the rotary dial days. So I hung up, which which I regret. I should have listened to both sides of the conversation. But I snuck down in the hallway to eavesdrop um, because I knew there was, a, there was a problem brewing. So my dad ends up telling my mom what happened with my sister during the day. And as any mother on the planet would be upset that their teenager got arrested for doing this. And so now this was where things were weird because instead of my dad being super angry with my sister for what happened, he was being compassionate and understanding because he felt like the threats that the police did and the the scare that they had was enough punishment for my sister. 
And he had made an agreement with my sister that he wouldn't say anything to my mother before the three of them could sit down together and talk. So now my dad is getting mad that my mom is mad because this is happening. So to the point that I knew that there was going to be trouble when the two of them saw each other. So they hung up the phone. Ah, my ride ends up being late. Next thing you know, um, my mom, the garage door is opening. I was upstairs. I heard the garage door open. I'm like, crap. I need to create a diversion because number one, my sister's supposed to be home, but she's not. And my ride is late. And now my mom is home. So I run downstairs. I create a distraction, make up some story like I needed some help with my geometry because my mom was the one that helped me with math. And so by this time, my dad is still, this is like an hour later, he's still drinking and his favorite drink was a Manhattan, which that's not a light beverage. And so he's still nursing, well, not nursing, he's still drinking a Manhattan while sitting at the built-in um, desk in our kitchen. Now, mind you, we lived in a very upscale neighborhood. So, you know, the facade that we lived behind was quite elaborate. And, um, you know, people thought that we were the cleavers, but no one knew. And so he's sitting there drinking this drink. And my mom comes in and I make this distraction and they don't even really say anything to each other. And so I I made the assessment that, okay, maybe this is going to be okay. Lisa should be home any minute because now my ride is 20 minutes late and it only takes 20 minutes to get to our house from the school. And, um, and so my ride comes, honks the horn. I kiss my mom goodbye. And I say, I love you. And I run out the door. And next thing I know, I get to the school. My sister's still at the school at practice, but I don't think much of it. Um, and then about a half hour into practice, uh, maybe 40 minutes, I don't remember exactly the timing. I'm running out to get a drink uh, for a break, and I run into my friend, my neighbor, and um, her mom. And they're there to pick us up because there's been a fire at our house. So I, um, I immediately am in a panic um, because I knew the situation that I left, but I didn't have any information other than there was a house fire. So I grab my sister. We we get into the neighbor's car, and um, I start asking questions. And, uh, and the neighbor, uh, Mrs. Idell, the Zydells we were really close to. So, and, and he was our dentist, by the way. And, and so we, we basically, I basically grew up in their house. So it wasn't like they were just acquaintances. And so I say to Mrs. Zydell, and this stupid song is playing on the radio in 1985, um, the roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. I don't need no water. Let the beep, beep burn. And so Lisa's singing along to this song while at the same time I'm asking Mrs. Idell, 
where's my mom? Because she's already saying, well, your dad's fine. The, uh, the fire stations there, the fire trucks are there. They're, they've got the, they're getting the fire out. And, um, and so I'm like, where's my mom? Oh, well, she's not home from work yet. So Lisa's singing the song and she, I get this answer. I'm like, oh, hell no. And so I hit my sister in the leg going, you need to, you know, shut up. Mom was home when I left. And as soon as I said that to Lisa, her and I both knew that mom was dead. And we both knew that my dad did it. And so um, that's where this, that's where the book starts is um, really in the moment when we arrive at the fire and they haven't told us anything. And, um, you know, you, when you're in that situation, you, um, you don't want to believe that to be true, even though your gut is telling you this is what happened. And so, um, so as it turns out, uh, long story short, my dad murdered my mother and burned our house down. But, you know, and I was 15 years old and my sister was 17. But it took two and a half years for him to go to court. We had to live with him. He wasn't arrested right away. He wasn't even arrested. He wasn't arrested. This happened in October. He wasn't arrested until February. I mean, when I got to our neighborhood, um, when we were pulling in, the police had the roads blocked, but ABC, NBC, CBS, all the major news networks were there filming. I literally watched my house on fire at the 11 o'clock news, and they knew that night that it was arson, but um, they didn't know it was murder. And... uh, as a matter of fact, the first coroner <laughs> screwed up and said natural causes, and then that then it got changed, and it, it's just a very, it's you, it's an unbelievable amount of uh, trauma that happened in that time period. Because if you believe it or not, things got worse after that. Mm. One of the things that we've explored on the show before with guests is. Um, you know, different eras and how things were covered and talked about. Um, we've talked about maybe uh, the Me Too movement and how that's shifted conversations. And so walk me back to the, you know, I was born, I sent you offline in 1985. So I was born in July of 1985. So obviously this this year is from my memory banks doesn't exist. So what was it like and what were the available options to a 15 and 17 year old as far as, hey, dad's an alcoholic, uh, there's some abusing, there's, there's abuse going on in the home. Was that something that was talked about at school or on TV or in the news? Or was it something that you kind of had to keep hushed? I mean, because thinking about that, even today as society, we, we have, we struggle with how to have those conversations. And so I'm guessing in 85, it was, uh, um, obviously there was the, the, the reality that's, that's, that's tough to deal with, but then the available options, were, were there any available options at that time? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, they they're going to say that there was but just to blow your mind cps never even talked to me wow. i was put i was put on the stand to be the star witness for the prosecution to prove premeditated murder 
And I had to go home with my father that night. Hold on. <laughs> Say that again. Yes. So by the time it got to my senior year, I, my sister and I, nobody came to help us. Nobody. My sister and I had to live with my dad. We were the ones who bailed him out of jail and posted his bond when he got arrested after my mom's murder and charged with murder and arson. We're still living with him. They've never, they never, no one came to talk to us. We're both minors. Then by my senior year of high school, I couldn't take it anymore. I, I'm reading about my life in the newspaper and learning the same crap that everyone else is. My he's he's trying to kill my sister now. I've had to had to stop him from doing that. So um I um I moved to California to live with some friends. My dad literally called me and I had no the police talked to me the day after this happened. And then, and then they started getting reports of the history of domestic violence from my grandmother and my aunt and some of my mom's friends. And the police never even came back and talked to my sister and I again. The, and so my dad calls me up in February of 1988 when the tr trial was. And I'm in California and says, Shelly, you need to come home. You need to testify in court. Okay. I'm, I, I, I was stressed because I thought, well, crap, I'm, what, what am I going to say? By the way, for the last two and a half years, I've been trying to convince myself that you're innocent because you keep claiming you're innocent, even though I know you're not. And so um, I fly home on a Friday. My dad says, okay, here's the address. You need to go talk to the lawyer to get prepped for court on Monday. I go to the lawyer's office. I don't even know that the lawyer that I'm talking to is the prosecutor. I thought it was one of his associates prepping me to be a defense witness. Wait, so, so your dad calls you to say testify at the trial and you're talking to the prosecutor, but thinking you're talking, talking to the defense. Is that right? Yes. Wait, so why'd your dad call you? Like, I'm confused. Like, why would he? Because, because I was subpoenaed and he knew I was subpoenaed oh, okay. and I had to come. And so okay. he paid for my plane ticket to come home. Mm -hmm. I'm staying with him. I go to the prosecutor's office. And now this flood of evidence that I didn't know that, that caused me to, in that moment on Saturday, mm -hmm. and I have to testify Monday morning, I learned that not only am I testify, not testifying for the defense, but I'm testifying for the prosecution. The prosecution is now showing me all this evidence that makes it impossible for me to live in the denial that I was living in. Mm. Um, and, and then I realized that not only are they going to like, you know, use me to say that my mom was home before I left because my dad's first statement said she wasn't home from work when he left to go to the store to, to buy um, heating supplies. Yeah, you know, it's not just about the facts of that day. Yeah. Now she's asking me questions of do you, when was the first time you remember your dad saying that he was going to kill you guys and burn your house down? When do you remember him threatening to 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 um kill your mother? Mm -hmm. Do you remember this incident? And I'm like, how the hell do you know all this stuff? 
And, and so now I'm, I'm, I'm going, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to tell the family circuit our secrets in open court in front of my father. And she's using me to prove for premeditated murder. And so, you know, I'm a teenager. Right. And so I, um, so that night I'm debate, I'm like trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out, do I just play stupid? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. no, you can't, I can't play stupid because that's not honoring my mother. And, you know, I've already lost my, my mother, my home, all my worldly possessions. And I, even though I, I hated what my dad did and I knew that he did it, I still loved my father. Yeah. Let, let me hop in here. I hate to, I hate, I hate to hop in, but I think there's, there's something that's interesting here to get your perspective on. Um, you live through a situation that hopefully no one ever else has to live through, but but it's something that probably none of our listeners or very few would have to have listened, lived through. Maybe they might've had an abusive uh, parent or, or, or uncle or something like that, or that might've happened. But, but the, your story is, um, you know, um, a, a, obviously a tragedy, but, but on the extreme end of these situations. Um, and yet you're struggling with emotions. One of the, the things that I've been contemplating recently is how hard it is for someone who hasn't gone through these things to understand the perspective of the person going through them. And so you think about someone mentioned Patty Hearst the other day on the podcast and how she was kidnapped. And next thing you know, she's robbing banks and it's like, well, how did, how did they switch her? Because like, it's so foreign. You would think from the outside, Oh, there's no way I would ever do that. And yet there's an example of someone who just flipped in your story, you have all of these mix and range of emotions. Maybe if you could kind of explain the pressure, I guess it may be the right word, or the or the mismatch of emotions that you have. Like, because I'm hearing this and it's it's obviously I feel terrible. It's this like my gracious, but but for people, I think one of the things is society I wanted to for people to think about is trying to walk in the shoes of people who were in those tough situations so we can be better prepared to help them think about them, look at them. And so as I'm hearing your story, test up, you're going to testify for your dad, I think is the way I'm understanding it, or you thought you were. So you were willing to, you bailed him out of jail. You said, um, yet you probably, you suspected that he was behind the murder, but yet you went through the denial phase or wanted to suppress it, which are all, they all make sense. So what was that period like, trying to grapple with um, this wide range of emotions? Is it something where you're trying to say, I don't really know? Is it something that you say, no, I really think so? Like, I, I can't imagine. So could you, does that make sense? You can unpack that for us? Yeah, well, and, and it starts at the beginning, especially, you know, domestic violence in general. If you talk to somebody who's never experienced, they'll say, well, the first time someone does this to me, I'm out of there. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. And in the 80s, it really didn't work that way. I had one friend that was di- had divorced parents. Yeah. And, um, you know, my mother used to say, my mother literally would tell my sister and I for, for years that um, one of these days, you're not going to be here and he's going to kill me. Okay, because she knew that we were saving her life by intervening every time these fights happened. So that was guilt that my sister and I had to live with too. But mm-hmm. see, 
the, the, the problem is, is this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. You have, on one hand, my dad could be loving and fun and kind. I'm an engineer. I, I build, I, I love, I'm a woodworker. I build things. He taught me all those skills. And, um, you know, and so he would, we had a cottage. He would take, he would be the one that would take my sister and I to the beach. He would let us sit on his back while he swam like a whale in, in the, in, in Lake Huron. And so I have those memories too. So there's a lot of conflict and it's, it's very, very difficult. And then you don't, when you're born into it, you don't know any different. You assume for, for years, you assume that everybody else's life is the same way. And so um, it's your normal. And so you, you develop the, the love for your parent the same way, even though there's broken pieces of it. And so, so, you know, when I was put in that position to have to testify for the prosecution, I was really upset. And um, because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I should do. I was very conflicted and I was just presented undeniable proof that he had done this because I I had some deniable because I didn't have enough information before. It was just my gut in my history. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's what I've learned in, in, you know, I've learned that a lot of my, not a lot, all of my experiences have enabled me to have opportunities for growth if I chose to use it that way as an opportunity. And, and so um, I, my first instinct now is I don't, I try not to judge anybody's situation because you don't know, you do not know all the facts. And I try to assume that everybody is doing their best. And so, and they're trying to do what feels right to them and what is best for them. And so um, in every single situation is different and every single person responds to every situation different. My sister and I have responded to this situation completely differently. And so, you know, we, we can't really judge people because not any, not, there's nobody that's going to see the situation the same way as you. And, um, and so there, when, when you have trauma like this, it's, there's so many tales to it that you don't know. Cause the history is, is there. I mean, yeah, people are reading, well, this guy murdered his wife and burned his house down, but did, are they reading that you know, when we went to Disneyland and I had leg cramps, he spent two hours rubbing my legs in the bathtub right. because my legs were hurting. So it's complicated. And that's, you know, it's one of the things um, that that I struggle with with stories like this. Um, because you don't want to, I, I don't have nothing against the true crime genre per se, but I don't want to make it a only a this happened and this happened and then they got the bad guy because that's there's there's so much more depth to these stories um uh there's they're they're more complex right as you're saying that there's 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 layers to these stories that are that are 
they're 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 just stunning um on some level and then contradictory on the other and um and and, and deep there's a deepness to these stories that that make them hard to hard to tell so as you're reflecting back and you're you're writing a book and you're you're talking about this story how do you try to strike that balance of getting the full circle of the depth of your story right well and that's be i mean my book is long because my my i have a, a lot of adversity experiences you know i i fit in with the me too movement too i mean that was happening to me at the same time i um in the the year that i turned 15 in july we went to england on a family vacation and i ended up getting raped by a guy i met in a pub there that i that you know i didn't even tell tell anybody until I was 45 years old, had 20 years of trauma therapy. I was married, my best friend, nobody. I told nobody until I was in the process of writing the book. And my, um, and my best friend, Julie, who's basically my sister, because her family's adopted me, is looking at me going, Shelly, what happened in England? Because she saw a look on my face. And that's when I first told. Now, mind you, Ryan, that happened in July, three months before my mom died. My mom, my mom dies in October. Then my parents had gone to Mexico every year to the same resort since I was um, in first or second grade. And when I was 11, um, our Christmas present was to go with them on that trip. Well, I went that with them at 11 on that trip and I got molested by a man there that was acquaintances with my parents. Well, now come to find out after my mom's murder, my dad had bought tickets for us to go to Mexico in February that year. Well, right before we were supposed to leave on that trip, my dad got arrested and couldn't go. So he sends me and my sister with my older cousins. Well, guess who's there? The guy that molested me at 11 is there. And I'll be damned if I don't end up getting raped by this guy. So, um, when you're in domestic violence, you're trained to not speak up, you don't say anything, and then you become like you have a target on your back for abuse. So um, because you don't you don't you don't know how to stand up for yourself, you're you're robbed of your voice, and perpetrators know these things. And so when you find people that have like huge traumatic events in their life, you're going to find that they have many traumatic events in their life because they're set up from fail for failure from the beginning. And, and so, um, you know, I take 12 hours. If you, if you got the audio book, it takes you 12 hours to go through here because you, you have to, you have to kind of paint the picture so you can see the good, the bad, and the ugly, and how how complicated the whole situation really is. I want to go back to the trial for a second, because you mentioned testifying. Um, it, and I don't know, this is a more of a, just a legal question. I'm, I'm curious about, could they, you said they subpoenaed you. Can children be compelled to testify against their parents? Because I think spouses can't, but can children be compelled to testify against their parents? You know, they must. 
I have no idea. I just did what I was told. Okay. And, um, and I, I never bothered to go back and figure it out. I mean, but, but just testifying at trial was another trauma for me. Oh, uh, I, yeah, I'm sure. Sure. Yeah. You know, it was, I, I was on the stand all day. They had to dismiss the jury. And then here's the, here's the kicker. Here is the absolute kicker. So I'm on the stand. I'm struggling just to answer the basic questions that the prosecutor's asking because I know what's coming. My dad's staring at me across the room. The gallery is full. The jury's over here. The judge is yelling at me because I'm not speaking loud enough. Well, I'm trying not to fall apart and cry. Well, I was crying. He dismisses the jury to make it quote unquote easier on me. I'm thinking, can you let my dad leave the room? And I can tell you all kinds of crap. And so, but you know, that's illegal. So um, while the jury is out, is the prosecutor got into the hardest questions and led me down the road. And so I mentioned that my dad had threatened to murder us, all of us, and burn the house down. And I tell this story in the book. I was six years old. We, that was the first time I remember that we fled the house. And mind you, my parents were married just one month shy of 25 years. And the police were called exactly zero times. <laughs> and the abuse started from the beginning. So, um, so anyway, we flee the house. I know that it's the summertime because I remember how I'm dressed. I remember the temperature. I re- and I remember the, which car it was. And we're in the auto industry. So I knew it was a 1976 Mustang hatchback, blah, 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 blah. I knew we had just gotten the car. So I knew it was 1976. I knew it was July or August of 1976. And so I'm, I'm recanting this story. I give all these details. I remember my dad chasing us out the driveway. I remember us pushing the car out so we wouldn't wake, you know, he wouldn't know we were fleeing, blah, blah, blah. All these details. I do that for a whole host. I mean, my testimony is over a hundred pages long. So I do this for all these stories. I get done and I know I'm risking my life because like I said, Ryan, I knew I was going home with my dad that night and I had to stay with him. And I know that I had, you know, before I moved to California, had to prevent him from basically slamming my sister's head on the countertop and killing her. So I know what I'm going into, and this is what they're putting, this is the position they're putting me in. I'm risking my life to do this testimony. So they call another recess to, to um, bring the jury back for the end of my, the end of the, the day. And I didn't even know this until I was writing the book and I went back to the courthouse to get some of the um, transcripts that because I couldn't remember that it was July 27th or July 13th or August 2nd. I only could remember it was uh, the summer of 1976 or whatever other um, story I told them with the context. I couldn't remember the exact date. The judge threw out all my testimony. All of it. And all of it. And my dad didn't get convicted of first degree murder. He got convicted a second because of it. 
So tell me that that's not right. Can you tell me the last time you fought with your wife, what the date was? Oh, wait a minute. No, I'm going to tell tell me, um, let's see, 1976. I was 15 at the time. So uh, I was 17 when I made So 11 years ago, can you tell me the exact date from 11 years ago when you had an argument? Hmm. That's unbelievable. It's, 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 <laughs> I mean, it's, so because the testimony was thrown out, he got, you said second degree instead of first. Yeah. And was there a difference in penalty? Um, in oh the, yeah. What was the difference? Yeah. He ended up, <laughs> he ended up getting sentenced to 13 years instead of life. And um, seven years for the arson to be served concurrently. So he oh, would wow. have been he would have been up for parole because my dad was um, let's see was he fifty six? He was fifty six when the when the trial happened. So um, he would have been up for parole in less than ten years. Did you ever get to talk to any of the jurors after the after the trial? No, I immediately flew. I mean, literally the day after I testified, I flew back to California, and and then I I didn't live in Michigan again for years. I mean, I would come home mm-hmm. um, on, during the summers and and holidays. I didn't have a home to come to, but I would come to Michigan and I would stay with my aunt or friends or or whatever. But, um, but, but no, I never talked to any of the jurors and, and there were so many, it's crazy. Like one, one of the things that was sketchy about the evidence that I learned at the prosecutors is she's showing me this picture of our living room and there's this huge, and I, when I mean huge, I mean, probably three feet in diameter, clearly a blood stain on the carpet in the living room. They had taken that picture the night of the fire. I had been sitting in the corner of that room, looking out the window at one point, waiting for my ride. And we had a circular staircase. It was a vaulted ceiling in that room. And the room is about 20 foot by 20 foot. Okay. So it's not small. And this is carpet, not a rug. So they took the picture of this stain. When the police went back, like a week later with the crime lab to, to take samples of this stain, the entire carpet was gone. So they didn't know if it was blood or not blood. Of course it was blood. Mm-hmm. So the, de- the defense is saying, oh, no, one of the police investigators must have spilled their coffee. Bullshit. <laughs> they didn't spill their coffee. And, and how, as a police department, do you let an active crime scene get a 20 foot by 20 foot carpet removed from a room with furniture in it. That's weird. You know, and then another weird part of the story is at some point, a a few weeks after the fire, my dad started sending me back there to get canned goods out of the basement. So I was investigating 
my own mother's murder by myself. Mm. So, cause I, by, it was scary as hell going back there. It was horrible actually, but you know, I discovered because of my own investigation in the house where my mother's body was. And it wasn't in the living room. It was in the family room, which was the back of the house. So he stabbed her in the living room, carried her to the back of the house, doused her with gasoline, and set the house on fire. So so it's just, I'm telling you, there's so many tales of the story. You mentioned you spoke to your dad before you went on the witness stand. He called you to let you know you were subpoenaed, bought the plane ticket. When did you speak to him again? Um, well, I went home with him that night. He actually, and I think, and now that I know that the testimony got thrown out because I was petrified to see him. When they called the second recess, I went downstairs to get a drink. And I saw my dad coming down the hallway and I was scared senseless because I just, I, I, I knew I was dead. (laughs) And my dad's response was he hugged me and he said, well, you just got to say what you got to say. Probably the best parenting moment of his entire life. And so, um, he, you know, I went home with him that night. And then the next day I flew back to California. And then a couple of weeks later, his trial was over. I came, I flew home for sentencing. I visited my dad regularly. Every time I came home, I would, for a couple of years, I would visit him. And then finally, it just got to the point that I could, I mean, he was a narcissist. Most, most domestic violent uh, perpetrators are narcissists. And so I couldn't take his mental manipulation, even from 2000 miles away when I was in college. And my, my therapist that I started finally talking to when I was a freshman in college said, you know, for your own sanity, you, you, you gotta, you gotta stop talking to him at least until you get through some healing. And, um, so I didn't talk to, I, but before that, I mean, I, I went to, when he first went to prison, he was in Jackson, which isn't that far from Detroit, maybe an an hour West from where I was living. But then, um, after that, he got moved to Muskegon, which is way on the other side of the state. It's like a three and a half hour drive. I would, I would come home, borrow a car drive three and a half hours, go through the the humiliation of being frisked and everything else and waiting and to see him visit him for an hour and, and drive three and a half hours back. You know, I mean, I was the only one at BYU getting letters from prison, <laughs> you know, getting collect phone calls from a prisoner. Um, so. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 I still loved my, and I still love my dad. I've forgiven him. I hate what he did, but you know, he was an alcoholic for a reason. And, um, um, 
you know, you, you have to, my grandfather, his father was a abusive alcoholic while his father was also an orphan because his mom died in childbirth and his dad, um, was an alcoholic and died. And when he was five years old, he was a world war one vet. My dad was a Korean war vet. They both had PTSD. So I, again, it goes back to, I don't have enough information to assess where the accountability begins. So it's not my job to judge him. It's my job to forgive him and let God judge him. And, um, and, you know, people, people have, um, mixed feelings about forgiveness. I learned that forgiveness isn't for them. They don't know that you've forgiven them or not. It's for you. So you can let go of the anger, the hate, the desire for revenge, whatever it is. So you can get rid of the negativity. That's why forgiveness is powerful. What was the last conversation you had with your dad like? Well, it kind of it kind of happened weird because what happened is it was the summer after my freshman year of college. Um he was calling me collect cuz that's how he could he could call me. And um I came home from work one afternoon and the in in the way that our contracts would work for housing I I went to BYU and so you would get um you could sign a contract for spring and or for fall and winter term uh with one one um apartment complex but then during summer spring and summer term you could have a different contract so I already signed a contract for this certain uh, place to live in the fall. So during the summer, I was living at this condo and I came home and um, it was the end of July, beginning of August. And um, the guy had sold the condo and we needed to be out in a week. Well, I, I didn't have, I had to, I was working, I was taking classes and I had to pack up all my crap and be out in a week. And <clears throat> I mean, he put us up in another place. But again, this was back in the day where it's landline. So if you move, you have a different phone number. So um, I didn't have a chance to communicate with my dad to let him know that this was happening. My sister still was talking to him. My, <clears throat> my sister and I had gotten our own attorney. Because like I said, the first death certificate said natural causes. Well, my dad got the proceeds of the life insurance policy. And um, my my parents were well off. My sister and I had had $40,000 in the bank each for college that was mostly given to us by our grandparents, which my dad's took to, my dad went to prison we had four houses and six cars all paid for. So, um, but he had taken my college money. He had taken my sister's college money to buy the last one. And um, he had, I mean, there was hundreds of thousands of dollars missing. And my sister and I had gotten our own attorney to try to sue the insurance company because they settled with my dad when they sh- He's the murderer. 
So they should have been settling with us. And so my dad was pissed that we had gotten this attorney and he got into this fight with my sister on the phone and hung up on her. And this was in August of uh, 89. Yeah, 89. And so, and before my dad went to prison, he had fought, he had retired with a full pension from Ford Motor Company. So um, he had an income too. And here he has two teenage daughters that are homeless and he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> so um, he hangs up on my sister and he's all mad. And I'm just like, okay, I didn't, I didn't think much of it. I move into my apartment in September. You know, you're busy getting started. So the end of September, I write my dad a letter. I say, here's my new phone number. Here's my new address. Here are my classes, blah, blah, blah. Normal kind of touch base point. Well, I don't hear back from him. I don't hear back from him. I don't hear back from him. Well, meanwhile, I'm still having reoccurring nightmares every day because I've been having reoccurring nightmares since the day it happened. And I need closure. I need to know, Dad, what I, I don't I don't care what you did. I need to know what happened. I need to not stop trying to figure out what happened. So I wrote him this letter in November and I said that. I said, Dad, I know you did this. I don't I can forgive you for doing it, but I need you to tell me what happened so I can. So it can, I can stop the pain. And so I, I go home for Christmas. This, this, um, this is now my sophomore year. I go home for Christmas for the first time I come to Michigan. I don't go see him because he didn't respond to my letters. I thought he was pissed at me. So I go back to school in January and I get this letter from him and it starts off with, if it's money you want, I have none. Oh, and by the way, he had cut me off financially. And uh, I went a month without food um, uh, when I was living in the dorms. That's, I, I talk about it all in the book. But so he he's like, he if it's money you want, I have none. You know, all I got for Christmas was a busted nose, blah, 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 blah. And he's berating me for this letter that he got in November, and he clearly never got the letter that I sent in September. So I feel guilty and bad. So I respond to this letter that he sends me. And I'm like, Dad, I'm so sorry. I love you. This is what must have happened. You didn't get my letter. I was upset. I thought you were mad at me. And I apologize. (laughs) So then I get a letter back from him. And he's blaming me that he's still in jail and that he tells me all this stuff. And he's, and I actually, I think put a copy of this letter in the book because he, and I still have all these letters. He, he signs it betrayed 192683, his prison number. And so when I got that letter, my therapist is like, okay, you've got to be done. And so that's how my last conversation went, was my dad blaming me for his incarceration um, because I didn't do X, Y, and Z, which I actually did do um, to try to get him help. And he signs it betrayed. 
And then his final thing, so I didn't talk to him from, that was in, I think, March of 90. And he died in 97 of cancer. Hmm. And his final thing, his, his final thing was to make sure my sister and I got nothing. Hmm. Okay. You mentioned earlier, uh, and you said it, um, when you were walking out of the house, the last thing you said to your mom was, I love you. And I, and I caught that because some people talk about that, 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 that last conversation, they wish they could have framed it differently. And you, you touched on, you know, you wish you'd be on the phone or, or whatnot. And obviously you, you had no idea. Um, but if you could have a cup of coffee, a lunch with her, what would you talk about with her today? Well, I, <laughs> I've had, I've had many experiences with my mother since she's passed. So, um, but if I could have uh, a, just a sit down and lunch, I would just, I just want to hug her. I want to hug her. And, and so um, I know that she's been, she hasn't missed a beat of my life. I know that she's been at everything that's important. And I know that she's been helping me all along. And, you know, I, I have, like I said, I've had many, 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 many experiences and I'll just, and I talk about a few of them in the book, but I told you at the beginning that my sister and I were we're basketball players. Well, we were three sport athletes from the time we were in elementary school. And my mother never missed any game ever or concert or anything we ever were in. So my first basketball game after the fire um, would have been the first game she would have missed in my life. And so we were at a opposing team's gym. I was a guard and I, I, I'm short, but I was fast at stealing balls. And so I always, I always would steal the ball. So I, I had sold the ball just before halftime and I'm driving the lane and I'm getting ready to do this layup. Super easy for me to do. And I hear my mother cheering from the stands and I looked and I saw her and I felt her and I bricked the shot and then I hear this Shelly I I hear my mother's voice and I just saw her with my own eyes and I'm feeling her presence and I hear her voice say to me Shelly I love you and everything's going to be okay. And so within a couple months of, of this hell on earth, she came to me three times with that message. And I, I talk about those experiences in the book. And then I've had subsequent experiences. She's actually the one who asked me to write this book. And I wasn't going to start the podcast by saying that because I wanted to give context. Mm-hmm. But um, so, so I have had a blessing and a privilege that most people don't. Mm-hmm. 
when it comes to the passing of a loved one. Okay. It's, it, we spent an hour and I feel like I've just scratched the surface. So we gotta go get the book, deep dive into this thing. Uh, we're going to link to the book in the show notes, of course. Uh, the website is beautifulashesmemoir.com. We'll link to that in the show notes. Anywhere else you want us to send people to uh, who want to find out more about your story beyond the book and the website. Well, the, the website has, you know, uh, a bunch of other podcasts that I'm on. It has links to go buy the book if you want to buy the book. And um, uh, yeah, I, I have some blog posts on there that I, I put out for uh, lessons learned. And if people want to follow me on social media, I, I've been out of the habit because my life has kind of been crazy the last uh, the last four or five months. But um, I, I post three times a week. Um, an inspirational quote that goes along with the life lesson that I can share because I'm, I've, I've learned a lot, Ryan. And that's the value in my story is what I've learned. I mean, but you have to know what my story is. So, you know, that I'm not full of crap when I'm giving these anecdotal um, solutions to what are seemingly insurmountable problems, but nothing is insurmountable nothing. And I haven't even, I gave you the tip of the iceberg of what I've been through. I don't even cover everything of what I've been through in the book because I can't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew, I knew from some of the stuff I read about the book where I was like, maybe we'll get there. Maybe we won't. <laughs> and we never got there. That's what I said. I feel like we, we've just scraped the surface, but it's been, it's been a delight and it's been enjoyable. Um, so definitely we'll recommend the book to everyone to go, go check out. Um, is it's just a, it's one of those stories that's like, man, as you said, there's so many just angles and facets, and just uh, every time you think you, every, every time I think I've kind of got, got a grasp of what's going on, I'm like, nope, here's a <laughs> here's something, here's something over here to go chase. So, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor if you enjoyed it. Would you drop a five star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad free. Thank you so much.